G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. The sad thing for me, Eric, was that I grew up in the 50s and 60s as a kid, and most of our stories here in Australia were predominantly British, and the the impression was that our Australian story was sort of second rate. But I began to see how there were people that were like me. They sang my heart music. I think it's so important that we hear stories that sing our own heart music. The story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Paul Rowe is known as the Outback Historian, and his book is called Tell Me Another, A Storyteller's Search for Australia's Lost Faith. Well, today we're going to hear the story behind the storyteller, and we'll find out why Paul is so passionate about Australia's spiritual heritage. That's all coming up today as Eric Scadabo has a chat with historian Paul Rowe. Paul Rowe, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. Glad to have you with us. And my first question is, where are you today? Well, I'm sitting in Dubbo in about two degrees. I think it's quite crisp. Must be colder where you are. Yeah, yeah. Pretty chilly these days. And we want to find out your story. How did you become a storyteller? Where did it all begin? Well, I guess I grew up in a storied family. I breathed in stories all the time in my family. And uh, when I went back and tracked it as an older person, I began to see there was definitely a huge investment by storytellers in my life. And so I I realised how much I owed to people who told, not only just told stories, but told stories with strong purpose and meaning that strengthened my faith. Okay. And your grandfather was a storyteller as well. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. James Rowe, uh, he was a coal miner up in... um, uh, Cessnock and Maitland in Newcastle, and uh, he he came to Australia as a boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd lost three siblings in England before he got here, and uh, then when he arrived two weeks later, his mum died. So he was pretty much on his own with his dad and sister. And then he worked as a miner, and then went north to Charters Towers. And so I think there was a lot of suffering in his life. I think. Mm-hmm. And I wondered why it was that he developed such a passion to tell stories to children because whenever I talked to old-timers who knew him, I never met him personally, they always said, oh, Mr. Rowe, yeah, yeah. He told lots of stories. They would see him coming home from the mines, Mm. uh, from work, and be sitting in the gutter with kids uh, gathered around him telling them Bible stories. Oh, okay. And not only just telling them, but he was a a dramatist, so they always – it was interesting because they'd laugh when they talked about him that he he was a hilarious storyteller and um, very engaging, a bit of a character. And uh, when I tracked his story, Eric, I found that when he married, he and his wife went up to the goldfields near Armadale in New South Wales and uh, their little boy, Eric, died there. He was only two years old and uh, it was a diphtheria epidemic went through. Mm. So, uh, again, another chapter of sadness in their lives uh, with children, children dying around them mm-hmm. and their own little boy. And that's what set them on a journey of looking for 
is there an answer to this? Like, what's the mm. meaning of life? Yeah. And what's going to happen to our little boy? And will we meet him again? And they went looking. The churches weren't all that helpful at first, but they did meet a Salvation Army girl who said, you know, you need to know Jesus. And that launched them on a warm story of faith for the rest of their lives. And I think that's what triggered storytelling in my grandfather's life. He just had a passion to gather children around him and tell them about the Jesus that had changed his life. Yeah, so you're kind of just carrying on your spiritual heritage, so to speak, from your grandfather. Well, yeah, I mean, my dad uh, and my uncle were great storytellers. They, Wherever they went, they set up Sunday schools or churches or camps. They loved camps and kids. Uh, so that was kind of the, the heartbeat of our family. So I grew up with lots of those things. I grew up going to camps and uh, hearing stories. And my dad was a pretty hilarious storyteller too. And he loved uh, pulling out a big sheet of butcher's paper. They didn't have much technology in those days. <laughs> and um, uh, and a black pen. And he'd sort of draw thousands of Philistines and whatever. And spears <laughs> flying and David and Goliath and all that sort of stuff. So he 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 generated a lot of laughter and joy in telling the stories. So for me, my... My family life was rich with story, and I learned to love the Bible, I think. It was just mm -hmm. uh, normal in my life to, to think in terms of the heroes of the Bible. And I think I, I imbibed the sense that somehow I belonged in this story as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all part of your heritage. Yeah, uh, heritage is kind of, it can be a bit of a sort of a heavy word to, to use, but I think um, perhaps it's, it, like I said, it's the air that I breathed. It was kind mm -hmm. of natural to us to think in terms of story and these days when i go into a classroom and i see a big list of uh values written up on the world like respect or you know uh, <laughs> courage or something or other they're good words they're powerful words but I, I never learned them by somebody writing them on the wall in a list i learned them by hearing the stories mm -hmm. and I, I had heroes yeah. who were like that they, they were naturally yeah. that way and my inner world, if you like, was filled with heroes and heroines who were men and women of faith, many of them, and and did those things as a matter, of course, of following Jesus. And so, if you talk about that as a heritage, yeah, it was it was kind of the mm -hmm. the lifeblood of our family. Yeah, it's interesting. You can say be respectful to a child, but if you tell a story of a hero who's respectful and has all the exactly. qualities that you want them to have, respectful, honest, courageous, yep. the story is going to yep. be a lot more powerful than just say, be respectful. Absolutely. I mean, we, we were teaching RE a couple of years ago in a school. Religious education? Yeah, we're doing our, yeah, religious education. And the teacher's sitting in the corner of the room, but she shouted across us, show some respect, you know. <laughs> really? You know, like... Uh, <laughs> The teachers weren't all that respectful, you know, themselves. Yeah. And what are the kids? They're going to see it. You know, yeah. they need to see it modelled. And uh, I guess for my, my life, much of my life, I was around people who also lived and breathed those stories. I was very fortunate. And, and that's how it sort of soaked into my soul. Mm -hmm. And speaking of religious education, you had a RE teacher who had a big impact on you? Yes, Uh when I was at high school, it was a boys' school, and you know, being in a Christian fellowship at a boys' school, you can be you're sort of the minority, and you sort of it's mm -hmm. a little bit weird. 
and uh, so it wasn't quite the heroic thing to do. And a lot of our RE teachers, to be honest, were very boring, hmm. and they weren't convincing, and they weren't... They weren't good storytellers. They were not good storytellers. <laughs> they were dreadful storytellers, yeah. and uh, they made this, the Bible boring as. You yeah, know? yeah. And, uh, but this one man projected himself into our world. He was a fantastic storyteller. I don't think I was meant to be in his class, but we all sort of smuggled ourselves in there anyway. Huh. Yeah. And um, he engaged us, and it turned out that he was had been a chaplain or a padre with John Flynn, the Flying Doctor Service in the Outback. Oh, okay. So he kind of had the a bit of a bit, a bit of red dirt under his fingernails, and he mm-hmm. he kind of exuded uh, manliness, I think, and uh, the the values that he was talking about, and the energy of somebody who loved the stories of the Bible. And mm-hmm. I think probably without me knowing it, what I had received from my upbringing, and and I saw focused with him in a boys' school setting. Um, was if you read, there's a part in the in one of the books in the New Testament, the the book of Hebrews, and there's a guy there. I don't know who wrote it, but he he he's obviously loves the stories that he's grown up with. In the, as a Jewish boy growing up in a Jewish household, where they told these stories, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like yeah, once upon a time stuff. This was us, you know. This was our story. This is who we are, you mm-hmm. know. Gideon, Samson, you know, <laughs> David. Yeah. Deborah, you know, Miriam, Moses, you know. So the Jews had this astonishing uh, collection of heroes. And more important than anything, Eric, they they had a very strong sense that their story was going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like most of the cultures around them thought in cyclical terms. That life mm-hmm. just went round and round and round. You were born, you lived, you died. Next generation came along. But the Jewish people were very careful to keep their stories alive because they were convinced that their story was a defining story. It wasn't just any old Mm -hmm. story. It wasn't just some mythical thing they'd made up. But these were real events that really happened to their ancestors. And so not only did they keep their genealogies alive, Mm -hmm. but they kept the stories alive. And you can sense in Hebrews 11, this guy, he loves his stories. And he gets to the end, he said, I haven't got time to tell you the rest of the story, but, you know, we're part of this story too, mm. and they're waiting for us. It's like, they're like a big, big audience sitting out there watching us in the arena, and they're cheering us on to play our part, and then we hand the baton on to the next generation. And so he's saying, don't lose heart. Like, remember mm-hmm. this great story that you're a part of. You are living in an epic, you know. You're not just sort of going to church to hear a Sunday school story, but you personally you belong in this story and this story is yours and you need to, you can contribute to it. You can live like yeah. this. Yeah. Well, when you put it that way, it's so much more exciting than just, you know, facts and data and genealogies. I mean, this is a living, breathing story that continues. And as you said, you can be a part of it. That's, that's very exciting. And so obviously you're referring to the faith hall of fame chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, where yep. they list all the great yeah. men of faith from the old Testament but and that's, women. <laughs> and women, yes, yeah. and that's an example of knowing their story and inspiring people to be part of that story. But you're saying that story continues till today, right here in Australia, as far as the spiritual heritage. Yeah, you're right, Eric. And I think one of the things that grieves me a bit is the way we've learned to tell our Bible stories. We sort of teach them abstractedly, and you know, that's once upon a time somewhere you know, without connection. I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. I try to train people. If you're going to tell the story, even to the little kids, 
put a timeline up there, get mm-hmm. pictures yeah. of the place where mm-hmm. it happened, show them the map. Mm-hmm. Now, make it grounded and real because we don't want them thinking, oh, this is, you know, Cinderella or something. Right, right. This really happened, you know, yeah. and we want them to put flesh and blood on these people. And then the other thing I think, too, is we don't generate this sense of movement and momentum that it's actually all linked together and it's moving forward steadily mm-hmm. to a conclusion, mm-hmm. which is exactly what the prophets of the Bible had. The, the final, they give us a sketchy idea of what's going to happen in the mm-hmm. future. So of all people in the world, the Judeo-Christian epic, uh, the people who own that story, it it generates hope. It's going somewhere. If you don't know where it's going, there's no hope, you know. (laughs) You're sort of making up a story every day for yourself, which is a pretty hard job to do, you know, to get up in the morning and think, you know, what are we doing again? Whereas the Christian has a story that he looks at. Well, also, the stories provide our identity, this is who we are. This is where we've come from, and this is what we're to do now, and this is where we're going. So it provides so many answers to life's big questions. Precisely, and I think even uh, some very significant historians who wouldn't call themselves Christians, like uh, Tom Holland, for example, mm-hmm. yeah. have been saying lately from their, their studies, look, you cannot understand Western civilization without the Christian story because mm-hmm. it moves from the assumption that, that the Jewish people generated in the world was given to them that God had made each individual and valued individuals. You did matter. Mm-hmm. Jesus sort of said, well, even the hairs of your head are numbered, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's hyperbole, but it's real. And suddenly if you think, well, my life actually matters and it does matter what I do today, mm-hmm. that the actions I do today can affect in a slight degree <laughs> where this whole story is going, you know, and, I can bring people along with me mm-hmm. and give them hope as well. Well, if you're living in something that's throbbing and alive and generating hope, well, why would you give it away? And for me, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what Christian story is. It's, it's fantastic. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with historian Paul Rowe, who's sharing his life journey with us and why he's so passionate about Australia's spiritual heritage. Next, we'll hear more of Paul's story and about Australia's connection to the restoration of Israel. All that and more when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Our guest today is the Outback historian, Paul Rowe, and his book is called Tell Me Another, A Storyteller's Search for Australia's Lost Faith. Paul is sharing his life journey. He's weaving into the conversation some Australian stories as well. Now, here's more of his chat with Eric Scatterbo. A person who had a positive influence on your life was author Ian Idris. Am I pronouncing the name right? That's correct. Yeah, yep. Yeah, he's quite a character, Eric. He, um, he walked out of the bookshelves in my parents' lounge room when I was probably young teenager I used mm-hmm. to love reading books and the sad thing for me Eric was that I grew up in the 50s and 60s as a kid and most of our stories here in Australia 
maybe it's different for you. I think you obviously come from the North American sort mm-hmm. of thing, yep. but uh, you know, our stories were predominantly British, and the the impression was that our Australian story was sort of second rate. You know, mm. that it didn't really. A bloke said this to me last Sunday. He said, "Oh, I had no idea that we had a story to tell." You know, that our story oh, wow. was pretty dodgy. Huh. Um, and um, I assume you set them straight, huh? Oh well, I didn't have enough time. But I, <laughs> I started. You know, I okay. made an effort, but well, hopefully he's listening um, today. Oh yeah. Well, Ian Idris, he, you know, he, he did that for me. He was mm-hmm. a wandering storyteller. He travelled. He was a, a tin miner. He was an opal miner. He was. A, he did stock work and all sorts of stuff. He did. Went to the First World War as a serviceman. Came back, but he gathered stories everywhere he went. Mm-hmm. And the forty or fifty volumes I've got on my shelves of yarns that he gathered from wow. all over the country. Now he was the first one who really infected me with the idea. Wow, you know, these these stories like. Uh, the Cattle King or John Flynn or mm-hmm. Lasseter's Last Ride and all these things. And Aboriginal people, he, he loves telling the story mm-hmm. of the Aboriginal people as well. Well, I was thinking, well, that, this, is a, this is a whole new world. I, I haven't been introduced to this. Most of the stories I, I was given were sort of English, mm-hmm. you know, and Enid Blyton and all those kind of things. And people lived in little cottages with nice stone walls and <laughs> spoke very proper English and things like that. And although Second World War heroes that flew in the RAF or something. Mm-hmm. But I began to see how there were people that were like me. They sang my heart music. They mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. Australians. Yeah, they loved mm-hmm. our country. They walked amongst gum trees, not, you know, pine forests and things with <laughs> yeah. meadows. We, yeah. we had paddocks. We had bear paddocks. They had nice green meadows. Yeah. Well, I think it's so important that, we hear stories that sing our own heart music, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. where we belong, mm-hmm. that talks to us in our own. And the Aboriginal people have said this, you know, when you're on country, when you you feel you belong there and you don't really belong in a place. One writer I read, he said, you don't really belong in a place until you've peopled it with stories, until you've created myths and legends that sort of fill that space with, you know, stories that sing to you. And I think that's mm. what was missing in my growing up. But subsequently, I'm, I'm working on changing that. Yeah. So the writings of Ian Idris really touched a place deep in your heart. Well, they did. And uh, I, I think I mentioned in the book that uh, he he wrote some things about the First World War, for example, the, the light horseman who'd become sort of fabled. Yeah. Can you, of, can you tell us about that? I keep hearing about the light horseman, but I don't know what the story is. What, what's the story? Oh, okay. Well, um, when the uh, the Australian infantry formed in the First World War, we didn't really have a, a much of a regular army, but the First World War changed all that. So obviously, horseback was a very was was still the major means of transport. Motor, mm-hmm. motor transport was only just beginning. So they formed these horse battalions and regiments, and uh, the light horse was sort of, they didn't carry heavy weapons or heavy gear. They tra- they travelled light, and they could move swiftly and precisely. And I, I met a couple of light horsemen in Burke when I was doing oral histories up there. And as I read Ian Idris' story, and then I met these men, I thought, wow, these are the guys who were there. And there's a very mm-hmm. famous, probably the last cavalry charge in modern history was the the charge at Beersheba that the Australians were involved in, uh, which was on the edge of the Holy Land. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. suddenly I found these stories that I'd grown up, places that I'd grown up hearing about in the Bible, 
Hey, there was there was big big booted Australians riding around in the horses in that very same place. Yeah, and taking back Palestine and and it, placing it in the hands of the British initially, and of course then it became modern Israel. But suddenly, I found my two worlds coalescing: mm -hmm. yeah. the Bible world that I'd grown up with, which was a long way back. But suddenly, hey, there were Australians there <laughs> stomping around yeah. and uh, being Australian and owning this story as well. So Ian Idris did that with the Light Horse. So he, he the Light Horsemen were, were were a lot of characters. Um, the ones I talked to said they got to Egypt and the, the British decided they were going to train these boys to ride horses. Well, mate, <laughs> these, these fellas have grown up riding horses since they were kids all over the backcountry. And so it, they saw it as a bit of a joke to be taught how to ride. They didn't take it all too seriously, but they were brilliant horsemen and they did perform very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they played a very significant part in that, that part of the war. So they became sort of legends with their emu feather on the hat and <laughs> slouch hat and their style. They had a sort of a, a larrikin style. Yeah. Now, speaking of Israel, I understand that Australia had another connection to Israel and the restoration of Israel. Tell us about that. Well, yeah. Um, in the First World War, of course, Lord Balfour made a famous declaration that Britain would guarantee a home for the Jews in Palestine. The Zionists at mm -hmm. the time were pressing for a home in Palestine because it was under Ottoman rule and the uh, it was mainly Muslim who were controlling the country, Arabs who were living there. And the Jews, of course, were being pressured by pogroms or persecutions across Europe in Russia and so on and being driven out of their homes. And so they were looking for a permanent home and the, mm -hmm. the Jewish patriots or passionate people were saying, we need to create a home for ourselves in Palestine. So when Lord Balfour declared that, the Brits took over and they were running the country for the next 20, 30 years. When the Second World War finished, um, the Brits had had enough. Um, it was a very troubled part of the world to try and control. And of course, the Holocaust had driven hundreds of thousands of Jewish people away from Europe and they were looking for safety, a sanctuary. And so they were coming back into Palestine and the the Brits were very happy to hand it over to the United Nations to try and sort it out. Mm -hmm. That's where Australia came in. Our Foreign Minister, Dr Evatt, became a very significant figure in the formation of the United Nations. He was a brilliant lawyer and he also was the chairman of the, the Committee on Palestine. And so when I was at university, uh, I wrote a thesis mm -hmm. on Australia's part in establishing Israel in 1948. And it was exciting because I, I was meeting these Jewish people in Sydney and I was interviewing them who were there with Dr. Evatt, went to the United Nations. They had been in Israel too. Some of them had fought the British. They, they were part of what was known as the Haganah or the the um, irregular Jewish forces. So mm -hmm. it was it was all pretty, pretty fiery stuff. Um, yeah. But it was fascinating to realise that Australia had played a part in establishing modern Israel. But then, Eric, I realised... On the other hand, ancient Israel had formed, had a very significant part to play in forming Australia because our country, when the British arrived here, for better or worse, with the colonial story, but they also bought the Bible and they bought people of faith mm -hmm. who did, in fact, try to do the right thing in our country. And many, many, many of the things that we take for granted in Australia came straight out of people's hearts who believed that. God did care for mm -hmm. all people, loved all people, and had a plan for them, and were trying in their best 
manner to establish something really healthy and good in Australia. So, yeah, Israel and Australia <laughs> coalesced, yeah. and I, I found that fascinating as a historian. I thought, wow, you know, yeah. it's my country. Um, you know, we, we link to Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, the name of your book is Tell Me Another Story, and I want to hear another story, but unfortunately, we've run out of time for this first conversation. So can we have you back to tell us some more stories and tell us more of your story? Mate, this we can go on for years. <laughs> well, we'll go on That's for another conversation at least. So we'll have you back to share some more. Okay. Well, that was part one of Eric Scadabo's conversation with the Outback historian, Paul Rowe. And as Paul just said, it does sound like it could go on for days because he has so many stories about Australia's rich spiritual heritage. We'll hear more of Paul's life journey and more Australian stories next time. In the meantime, you can read some of Paul's Australian stories on his website. He's got heaps there. Just go to the outbackhistorian.com.au and click on stories. Once again, that's the Outback Historian. Finally, we'll end today with a Bible verse about the importance and power of stories. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, They overcame and conquered the devil because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. You see, there's power in sharing our stories of how God has worked in our lives. And of course, that's why here at The Story, We believe so strongly in sharing these stories. We know they will change lives and inspire others. Well, thanks so much for joining us for part one of Paul Rowe's story and stories. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. At the time, I was in the honours year at university and I was under the... I had a professor there who decided he was going to put the blowtorch on me. He was a very cynical atheist. And for a whole year in his course, he he, he put the blowtorch on me. But I thank God for him because he made me really argue my faith as best I could. And it put some muscle into my faith. Paul Rowe is the author of Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. He joins us once again to share more of his life journey and to share more stories related to Australia's spiritual heritage. That's Paul Rowe, the Outback Historian, next time. The Story. Just another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.